Section 38 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book 11. Containing about three days. Chapter 1. A Quest for the Critics. In our last initial chapter, we may be supposed to have treated that formidable set of men who are called critics with more freedom than becomes us, since they exact, and indeed generally receive, great condescension from authors. We shall in this, therefore, give the reasons of our conduct to this august body, and here we shall, perhaps, place them in a light in which they have not hitherto been seen. This word critic is of Greek derivation, and signifies judgment. Hence I presume some persons who have not understood the original, and have seen the English translation of the primitive, have concluded that it meant judgment in the legal sense, in which it is frequently used as equivalent to condemnation. I am the rather inclined to be of that opinion, as the greatest number of critics hath of late years been found amongst the lawyers. Many of these gentlemen, from despair perhaps of ever rising to the bench in Westminster Hall, have placed themselves on the benches at the playhouse, where they have exerted their judicial capacity, and have given judgment, that is, condemned without mercy. The gentlemen would perhaps be well enough pleased if we were to leave them thus compared to one of the most important and honourable officers in the Commonwealth, and, if we intended to apply to their favour, we would do so. But, as we design to deal very sincerely and plainly, too, with them, we must remind them of another officer of justice, of a much lower rank, to whom, as they not only pronounce, but execute their own judgment, they bear likewise some remote resemblance. But, in reality, there is another light, in which these modern critics may, with great justice and propriety, be seen, and this is that of a common slanderer. If a person who pries into the characters of others, with no other design but to discover their faults and to publish them to the world, deserves the title of a slanderer of the reputations of men, why should not a critic, who reads with the same malevolent view, be as properly styled the slanderer of the reputation of books? Vice hath not, I believe, a more abject slave. Society produces not a more odious vermin nor can the devil receive a guest more worthy of him, nor possibly more welcome to him, than a slanderer. The world, I am afraid, regards not this monster with half the abhorrence which he deserves, and I am more afraid to assign the reason of this criminal lenity shown towards him. Yet it is certain that the thief looks innocent in the comparison. Nay, the murderer himself can seldom stand in competition with his guilt. For slander is a more cruel weapon than a sword, as the wounds which the former gives are always incurable. One method, indeed, there is of killing, and that the basest and most execrable of all, which bears an exact analogy to the vice here disclaimed against, and that is poison, a means of revenge so base and yet so horrible that it was once wisely distinguished by our laws from all other murders in the peculiar severity of the punishment. Besides the dreadful mischiefs done by slander, and the baseness of the means by which they are affected, there are other circumstances that highly aggravate its atrocious quality, for it often proceeds from no provocation, and seldom promises itself any reward, unless some black and infernal mind may propose a reward in the thoughts of having procured the ruin and misery of another. Shakespeare hath nobly touched this vice, when he says, "'Who steals my purse steals trash. Tis something, nothing.' "'Twas mine, tis his, and hath been slave to thousands. "'But he that filches from me my good name "'robs me of that which not enriches him, "'but makes me poor indeed.' 
With all this my good reader will doubtless agree, but much of it will probably seem too severe when applied to the slanderer of books. But let it here be considered that both proceed from the same wicked disposition of mind, and are alike void of the excuse of temptation. Nor shall we conclude the injury done this way to be very slight, when we consider a book as the author's offspring, and indeed as the child of his brain. The reader who hath suffered his muse to continue hitherto in a virgin state can have but a very inadequate idea of this kind of paternal fondness. To such we may parody the tender exclamation of Macduff, Alas, thou hast written no book. But the author, whose muse hath brought forth, will feel the pathetic strain, perhaps will accompany me with tears, especially if his darling be already no more, while I mention the uneasiness with which the big muse bears about her burden, the painful labour with which she produces it, and, lastly, the care, the fondness, with which the tender father nourishes his favourite, till it be brought to maturity, and produced into the world." nor is there any paternal fondness which seems less to savour of absolute instinct, and which may so well be reconciled to worldly wisdom, as this. These children may most truly be called the riches of their father, and many of them have with true filial piety fed their parent in his old age, so that not only the affection, but the interest of the author may be highly injured by these slanderers, whose poisonous breath brings his book to an untimely end." Lastly, the slander of a book is in truth the slander of the author, for, as no one can call another bastard without calling the mother a whore, so neither can any one give the names of sad stuff, horrid nonsense, etc., to a book, without calling the author a blockhead, which, though in a moral sense it is a preferable appellation to that of villain, is perhaps rather more injurious to his worldly interest." Now, however ludicrous all this may appear to some, others, I doubt not, will feel and acknowledge the truth of it, nay, may perhaps think I have not treated the subject with decent solemnity. But surely a man may speak truth with a smiling countenance. In reality, to depreciate a book maliciously, or even wantonly, is at least a very ill-natured office, and a morose, snarling critic may, I believe, be suspected to be a bad man." I will therefore endeavour in the remaining part of this chapter to explain the marks of this character, and to show what criticism I here intend to obviate, for I can never be understood, unless by the very persons here meant, to insinuate that there are no proper judges of writing, or to endeavour to exclude from the commonwealth of literature any of those noble critics to whose labours the learned world are so greatly indebted. Such were Aristotle, Horace, and Longinus among the ancients." Dachet and Bossu among the French, and some perhaps among us, who have certainly been duly authorised to execute at least a judicial authority in foro literario. But without ascertaining all the proper qualifications of a critic, which I have touched on elsewhere, I think I may very boldly object to the censures of any one past upon works which he hath not himself read. Such censures as these, whether they speak from their own guess or suspicion, or from the report and opinion of others, may properly be said to slander the reputation of the book they condemn. Such may likewise be suspected of deserving this character, who, without assigning any particular faults, condemn the whole in general defamatory terms, such as vile, dull, damned stuff, etc., and particularly by the use of the monosyllable low a word which becomes the mouth of no critic who is not right honourable. Again, though there may be some faults justly assigned in the work, yet if those are not in the most essential parts, or if they are compensated by greater beauties, it will savour rather of the malice of a slanderer than of the judgment of a true critic to pass a severe sentence upon the whole, merely on account of some vicious part. 
this is directly contrary to the sentiments of Horace. Verum ubi plura nitent in carmine, non ego paucis, offendor maculis, quas aut incuria fudit, aut humana parum cavit natura. But where the beauties more in number shine, I am not angry when a casual line that with some trivial faults unequal flows, a careless hand or human frailty shows. Mr. Francis. For, as Marshall says, aliter non fit avite liber. No book can be otherwise composed. All beauty of character as well as of countenance, and indeed of everything human, is to be tried in this manner. Cruel indeed would it be if such a work as this history, which hath employed some thousands of hours in the composing, should be liable to be condemned, because some particular chapter, or perhaps chapters, may be obnoxious to very just and sensible objections, and yet nothing is more common than the most rigorous sentence upon books supported by such objections, which, if they were rightly taken, and that they are not always, do by no means go to the merit of the whole. In the theatre especially, a single expression which doth not coincide with the taste of the audience, or with any individual critic of that audience, is sure to be hissed, and one scene which should be disapproved would hazard the whole piece. To write within such severe rules as these is as impossible as to live up to some splenetic opinions, and if we judge according to the sentiments of some critics, and of some Christians, no author will be saved in this world, and no man in the next. CHAPTER Two, THE ADVENTURES WHICH SOPHIA MET WITH AFTER HER LEAVING UPTON Our history, just before it was obliged to turn about and travel backwards, had mentioned the departure of Sophia and her maid from the inn. We shall now therefore pursue the steps of that lovely creature, and leave her unworthy lover a little longer to bemoan his ill-luck, or rather his ill-conduct. Sophia, having directed her guide to travel through by-roads across the country, they now passed the Severn, and had scarce got a mile from the inn, when the young lady, looking behind her, saw several horses coming after on full speed. This greatly alarmed her fears, and she called to the guide to put on as fast as possible. He immediately obeyed her, and away they rode a full gallop. But the faster they went, the faster were they followed, and as the horses behind were somewhat swifter than those before, so the former were at length overtaken. A happy circumstance for poor Sophia, whose fears, joined to her fatigue, had almost overpowered her spirits, but she was now instantly relieved by a female voice that greeted her in the softest manner and with the utmost civility. This greeting Sophia, as soon as she could recover her breath, with like civility and with the highest satisfaction to herself, returned. The travellers who joined Sophia, and who had given her such terror, consisted, like her own company, of two females and a guide. The two parties proceeded three full miles together before any one offered again to open their mouths, when our heroine, having pretty well got the better of her fear, but yet being somewhat surprised that the other still continued to attend her, as she pursued no great road, and had already passed through several turnings, accosted the strange lady in a most obliging tone, and said, she was very happy to find they were both travelling the same way. The other, who, like a ghost, only wanted to be spoke to, readily answered, that the happiness was entirely hers, that she was a perfect stranger in that country, and was so overjoyed at meeting a companion of her own sex that she had perhaps been guilty of an impertinence, which required great apology in keeping pace with her. More civilities passed between these two ladies, for Mrs. Honour had now given place to the fine habit of the stranger, and had fallen into the rear. 
but though sophia had great curiosity to know why the other lady continued to travel on through the same by-roads with herself nay though this gave her some uneasiness yet fear or modesty or some other consideration restrained her from asking the question the strange lady now laboured under a difficulty which appears almost below the dignity of history to mention her bonnet had been blown from her head not less than five times within the last mile nor could she come at any ribbon or handkerchief to tie it under her chin when sophia was informed of this she immediately supplied her with a handkerchief for this purpose which while she was pulling from her pocket she perhaps too much neglected the management of her horse for the beast now unluckily making a false step fell upon his forelegs and threw his fair rider from his back though sophia came head foremost to the ground she happily received not the least damage and the same circumstances which had perhaps contributed to her fall now preserved her from confusion for the lane which they were then passing was narrow and very much overgrown with trees so that the moon could here afford very little light and was moreover at present so obscured in a cloud that it was almost perfectly dark by these means the young lady's modesty which was extremely delicate escaped as free from injury as her limbs and she was once more reinstated in her saddle having received no other harm than a little fright by her fall daylight at length appeared in its full lustre and now the two ladies who were riding over a common side by side looking steadfastly at each other at the same moment both their eyes became fixed both their horses stopped and both speaking together with equal joy pronounced the one the name of sophia the other that of harriet this unexpected encounter surprised the ladies much more than i believe it will the sagacious reader who must have imagined that the strange lady could be no other than mrs fitzpatrick the cousin of miss weston whom we before mentioned to have sallied from the inn a few minutes after her so great was the surprise and joy which these two cousins conceived at this meeting for they had formerly been most intimate acquaintance and friends and had long lived together with their aunt weston that it is impossible to recount half the congratulations which passed between them before either asked a very natural question of the other namely whither she was going this at last however came first from mrs fitzpatrick but easy and natural as the question may seem sophia found it difficult to give it a very ready and certain answer she begged her cousin therefore to suspend all curiosity till they arrived at some inn which i suppose says she can hardly be far distant and believe me harriet i suspend as much curiosity on my side for indeed i believe our astonishment is pretty equal the conversation which passed between these ladies on the road was i apprehend little worth relating and less certainly was that between the two waiting-women for they likewise began to pay their compliments to each other as for the guides they were debarred from the pleasure of this course the one being placed in the van and the other obliged to bring up the rear in this posture they travelled many hours till they came into a wide and well-beaten road which as they turned to the right soon brought them to a very fair promising inn where they all alighted but so fatigued was sophia that as she had set her horse during the last five or six miles with great difficulties so was she now incapable of dismounting from him without assistance this the landlord who had hold of her horse presently perceiving offered to lift her in his arms from her saddle and she too readily accepted the tender of this service indeed fortune seems to have resolved to put sophia to the blush that day and the second malicious attempt succeeded better than the first for my landlord had no sooner received the young lady in his arms than his feet which the gout had lately very severely handled gave way and down he tumbled but at the same time with no less dexterity than gallantry contrived to throw himself under his charming burden so that he alone received any bruise from the fall 
for the great injury which happened to Sophia was a violent shock given to her modesty by an immoderate grin, which, at her rising from the ground, she observed in the countenances of most of the bystanders. This made her suspect what had really happened, and what we shall not here relate, for the indulgence of those readers who are capable of laughing at the offence given to a young lady's delicacy. Accidents of this kind we have never regarded in a comical light, nor will we scruple to say that he must have a very inadequate idea of the modesty of a beautiful young woman, who would wish to sacrifice it to so paltry a satisfaction as can arise from laughter. This fright and shock, joined to the violent fatigue which both her mind and body had undergone, almost overcame the excellent constitution of Sophia, and she had scarce strength sufficient to totter into the inn, leaning on the arm of her maid. Here she was no sooner seated than she called for a glass of water. But Mrs. Honour, very judiciously in my opinion, changed it into a glass of wine. Mrs. Fitzpatrick, hearing from Mrs. Honour that Sophia had not been in bed during the last two nights, and observing her to look very pale and wan with her fatigue, earnestly entreated her to refresh herself with some sleep. She was yet a stranger to her history or her apprehensions, but had she known both she would have given the same advice, for rest was visibly necessary for her and their long journey through by-roads so entirely removed all danger of pursuit that she was herself perfectly easy on that account. Sophia was easily prevailed on to follow the counsel of a friend, which was hardly seconded by her maid. Mrs. Fitzpatrick likewise offered to bear her cousin company, which Sophia, with much complacence, accepted. The mistress was no sooner in bed than the maid prepared to follow her example. She began to make many apologies to her sister Abigail, for leaving her alone in so horrid a place as an inn. But the other stopped her short, being as well inclined to a nap as herself, and desired the honour of being her bedfellow. Sophia's maid agreed to give her a share of her bed, but put in her claim to all the honour. So, after many curtsies and compliments, to bed together went the waiting-women, as their mistresses had done before them. It was usual with my landlord, as indeed it is with the whole fraternity, to inquire particularly of all coachmen, footmen, postboys and others into the names of all his guests what their estate was and where it lay it cannot therefore be wondered at that the many particular circumstances which attended our travellers and especially their retiring all to sleep at so extraordinary and unusual an hour as ten in the morning should excite his curiosity as soon therefore as the guides entered the kitchen he began to examine who the ladies were and whence they came but the guides though they faithfully related all they knew gave him very little satisfaction on the contrary, they rather inflamed his curiosity than extinguished it. This landlord had the character, among all his neighbours, of being a very sagacious fellow. He was thought to see farther and deeper into things than any man in the parish, the parson himself not excepted. Perhaps his look had contributed not a little to procure him this reputation, for there was in this something wonderfully wise and significant, especially when he had a pipe in his mouth, which, indeed, he seldom was without. His behaviour, likewise, greatly assisted in promoting the opinion of his wisdom. In his deportment he was solemn, if not sullen, and when he spoke, which was seldom, he always delivered himself in a slow voice, and, though his sentences were short, they were still interrupted with many hums and ha's, ay-ay's, and other expletives, so that, though he accompanied his words with certain explanatory gestures, such as shaking or nodding the head, or pointing with his forefinger, he generally left his hearers to understand more than he expressed. Nay, he commonly gave them a hint that he knew much more than he thought proper to disclose. This last circumstance alone may, indeed, very well account for his character of wisdom, 
since men are strangely inclined to worship what they do not understand. A grand secret, upon which several imposers on mankind have totally relied for the success of their frauds. This polite person, now taking his wife aside, asked her what she thought of the ladies lately arrived. "'Think of them?' said the wife. "'Why, what should I think of them?' "'I know,' answered he, "'what I think. The guides tell strange stories. One pretends to be come from Gloucester, and the other from Upton, and neither of them, for what I can find, can tell whither they are going. But what people ever travel across the country from Upton hither, especially to London?' and one of the maid-servants, before she alighted from her horse, asked if this was not the London road. Now I have put all these circumstances together, and whom do you think I have found them out to be? Nay, answered she, you know I never pretend to guess at your discoveries. It is a good girl, replied he, chucking her under the chin. I must own you have always submitted to my knowledge of these matters. Why, then, depend upon it. Mind what I say. Depend upon it. They are certainly some of the rebel ladies, who, they say, travel with the young chevalier and have taken a roundabout way to escape the duke's army. "'Husband,' quoth the wife, "'you have certainly hit it, for one of them is dressed as fine as any princess, and, to be sure, she looks for all the world like one. But yet, when I consider one thing—' "'When you consider,' cries the landlord contemptuously, "'come, pray let's hear what you consider.' "'Why, it is,' answered the wife, "'that she is too humble to be any very great lady, for, while our Betty was warming the bed, she called her nothing but child, and my dear, and sweetheart, and, when Betty offered to pull off her shoes and stockings, she would not suffer her, saying she would not give her the trouble.' "'Pah!' answered the husband, "'that is nothing. Dost think, because you have seen some great ladies rude and uncivil to persons below them, that none of them know how to behave themselves when they come before their inferiors? I think I know people of fashion when I see them.' "'I think I do. Did not she call for a glass of water when she came in? Another sort of women would have called for a dram. You know they would. If she be not a woman of very great quality, sell me for a fool. And, I believe, those who buy me will have a bad bargain. Now, would a woman of her quality travel without a footman, unless upon some such extraordinary occasion?' "'Nay, to be sure, husband,' cries she, "'you know these matters better than I, or most folk.' "'I think I do know something,' said he. "'To be sure,' answered the wife, "'the poor little heart looked so piteous when she sat down in the chair. I protest I could not help having a compassion for her almost as much as if she had been a poor body. "'But what's to be done, husband? Even she be in a rebel, I suppose you intend to betray her up to the court. Well, she is a sweet-tempered, good-humoured lady, be she what she will, and I shall hardly refrain from crying when I hear she is hanged or beheaded.' "'Pooh,' answered the husband. "'But, as to what's to be done, it is not so easy a matter to determine.' I hope, before she goes away, we shall have the news of a battle, for if the Chevalier should get the better, she may gain us interest at court, and make our fortunes without betraying her. "'Why, that is true,' replied the wife, "'and I heartily hope she will have it in her power. Certainly she is a sweet good lady. It would go horribly against me to have her come to any harm.' "'Pooh!' cries the landlord. "'Women are always so tender-hearted. Why, you would not harbour rebels, would you?' "'No, certainly,' answered the wife. And as for betraying her, come what will on it, nobody can blame us. It is what anybody would do in our case. While our political landlord, who had not, we see, undeservedly the reputation of great wisdom among his neighbours, was engaged in debating this matter with himself, for he paid little attention to the opinion of his wife, news arrived that the rebels had given the duke the slip, and had got a day's march towards London, 
and soon after arrived a famous Jacobite squire, who, with great joy in his countenance, shook the landlord by the hand, saying, "'All's our own, boy. Ten thousand honest Frenchmen are landed in Suffolk. Old England forever. Ten thousand French, my brave lad. I'm going to tap away directly.' This news determined the opinion of the wise man, and he resolved to make his court to the young lady when she arose. For he had now, he said, discovered that she was no other than Madame Jenny Cameron herself. Chapter 3 A very short chapter, in which, however, is a sun, a moon, a star, and an angel. The sun, for he keeps very good hours at this time of the year, had been some time retired to rest when Sophia arose greatly refreshed by her sleep which, short as it was, nothing but her extreme fatigue could have occasioned, for, though she had told her maid, and perhaps herself too, that she was perfectly easy when she left Upton, yet it is certain her mind was a little affected with that malady which is attended with all the restless symptoms of a fever, and is perhaps the very distemper which physicians mean, if they mean anything, by the fever on the spirits. Mrs. Fitzpatrick likewise left her bed at the same time, and, having summoned her maid, immediately dressed herself. She was really a very pretty woman, and, had she been in any other company but that of Sophia, might have been thought beautiful. But when Mrs. Honour of her own accord attended, for her mistress would not suffer her to be waked, and had equipped our heroine, the charms of Mrs. Fitzpatrick, who had performed the office of the morning star, and had preceded greater glories, shared the fate of that star, and were totally eclipsed the moment those glories shone forth. Perhaps Sophia never looked more beautiful than she did at this instant. We ought not, therefore, to condemn the maid of the inn for her hyperbole, who, when she descended, after having lighted the fire, declared, and ratified it with an oath, that if ever there was an angel upon earth, she was now above stairs. Sophia had acquainted her cousin with her design to go to London, and Mrs. Fitzpatrick had agreed to accompany her, for the arrival of her husband at Upton had put an end to her design of going to Bath, or to her aunt Weston. They had therefore no sooner finished their tea than Sophia proposed to set out, the moon then shining extremely bright, and as for the frost, she defied it. Nor had she any of those apprehensions which many young ladies would have felt at travelling by night, for she had, as we have before observed, some little degree of natural courage. And this, her present sensations, which bordered somewhat on despair, greatly increased. Besides, as she had already travelled twice with safety by the light of the moon, she was the better emboldened to trust to it a third time. The disposition of Mrs. Fitzpatrick was more timorous, for, though the greater terrors had conquered the less, and the presence of her husband had driven her away at so unseasonable an hour from Upton, yet, being now arrived at a place where she thought herself safe from his pursuit, these lesser terrors of I know not what operated so strongly that she earnestly entreated her cousin to stay till the next morning, and not expose herself to the dangers of travelling by night. Sophia, who was yielding to an excess, when she could neither laugh nor reason her cousin out of these apprehensions, at last gave way to them. Perhaps, indeed, had she known of her father's arrival at Upton, it might have been more difficult to have persuaded her. For, as to Jones, she had, I am afraid, no great horror at the thoughts of being overtaken by him. Nay, to confess the truth, I believe she rather wished than feared it, though I might honestly enough have concealed this wish from the reader, as it was one of those secret spontaneous emotions of the soul to which the reason is often a stranger. When our young ladies had determined to remain all that evening in their inn, they were attended by the landlady, who desired to know what their ladyships would be pleased to eat. 
Such charms were there in the voice, in the manner, and in the affable deportment of Sophia, that she ravished the landlady to the highest degree, and that good woman, concluding that she had attended Jenny Cameron, became in a moment a staunch Jacobite, and wished heartily well to the young pretender's cause, from the great sweetness and affability with which she had been treated by his supposed mistress. The two cousins began now to impart to each other their reciprocal curiosity to know what extraordinary accidents on both sides occasioned this so strange and unexpected meeting. At last Mrs. Fitzpatrick, having obtained of Sophia a promise of communicating likewise in her turn, began to relate what the reader, if he is desirous to know her history, may read in the ensuing chapter. End of section 38 of Tom Jones